One of the greatest things on earth we can do, and that is to gather with your people to take our, as it were, Christian Sabbath, not from a legal standpoint, but from a, a spiritual and practical standpoint, to just stop and to remember the Lord and to hear the truths of our God and our Savior. Because as the hymn famously says, that when we've been there 10,000 years bright, shining as the sun, we've no less days to sing God's praise than when we'd first begun. And so I pray that would be our perspective this day, Lord, that we would look to eternity, even as we trust you to help us day by day until we come home. In the meantime, help us to be faithful as a church, beginning with growing in the knowledge and grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. So just by way of review, um, we are on Module 3, Session 5. Module 3 is a shorter module, um, going back to the history of the fact that we used to do this one during the summertime, and we haven't uh, gone and evened them, evened them out yet. Are we, uh, do we have slides, or I just don't see it? There it is. It's like, wow, that's instant prayer request answered right there. Um, and so I told you that for Module 3, this is the module that includes... Um, three lectures on personal evangelism. It's something I always want to cycle as many people through as possible. And I said we'd save those to the end. And so we will, uh, we will do those all at one time. We're either going to do that next week or I'm actually hoping to get one of our speakers uh, after Steadfast to stay here on Sunday and do a Q&A with us on a specific topic, but I haven't reached out to him yet. Uh, either way, the Sunday School Hour will be epic next week because we're going to do either personal evangelism or uh, have him do a Q&A with us. But for today, what we're really doing is sort of a sneak peek at Module 4. Module 4 is heavy. Uh, it is the heaviest of all the modules, and it is heavy on soteriology, on the doctrine of salvation. And what I'm doing, going to do today is sort of a sneak peek and do a special topic uh, because when we do soteriology, we're going to do, I think, seven or eight different lectures uh, on soteriology, including the doctrines of uh, grace and election and atonement, divine calling, conversion, regeneration, justification, and so forth. We're going to go through all the doctrines of grace. But I want to do a preliminary special topic. And today that topic is salvation in the Old and the New Testaments. So we're introducing soteriology. We'll do this special topic today. So let's just introduce the word. I've always said it's important to teach uh, uh, useful words. Soteriology comes from the Greek soteria, which means salvation. Therefore, we have Soter, soteria, salvation, ology, the study or doctrine. So the doctrine of salvation. So I, that's a word we use a lot here, and I, I want you to be familiar with it because that's, that's the core of how we go to heaven. What is my soteriology? That's the biggest question you'll ever answer on this earth. What is my soteriology? So today, as we look at this special topic, um, first of all, basically what I'm going to be doing a uh, little pastor secret here that you come off as very, very authoritative if, is, if all you do is read Scripture. So that's what I'm going to be doing, is reading the Bible to you and proving some points about salvation in the Old and New Testament. But to introduce this, let me... Well, that was weird. The word soteria just popped up in red. That was, that was odd. Okay. Uh, 
to introduce this, and, and you don't have to write all this down. I just put it up there if you want, and you can get the slide off the, off the web if you want. But here's some classic Christian myths about Old and New Testament salvation. Some would say we're a New Testament church. We don't use the Old Testament. That's still a prominent belief today. I, I would encourage you to pick up a Sherlock Holmes story and begin reading halfway through and see if it makes sense when you get to the end. It never makes sense. The Bible does not make sense unless you start at the beginning. And so to say we're a New Testament church is a misnomer. Yes, we're a New Testament church, but we're a New Testament church that takes the entirety of Scripture, Old Testament and New Testament. So to say we're a New Testament church does not speak of content as much as it does of time. Does that make sense? We're we're a New Testament church because we're after Pentecost. Another Christian myth. In the Old Testament, you had to keep the law. In the New Testament, you don't have to keep any law. That's not true. That's a myth. And we'll deal with that here shortly. Another myth. In the Old Testament, faith was external, which, by the way, is an oxymoron, right? Faith being external. Faith was external. In the New Testament, faith is internal. That's a, that's a Christian myth. And by the way, I have to admit that a lot of these myths are, were perpetuated uh, in our circles, dispensational circles, in, in the last 100, 150 years. Uh, and those have been pretty much corrected. These myths, there, there are very few churches of our ilk that still preach this, uh, some of these. But they're, they are out there, but probably not in the circles we would run in a little bit more. Another myth, the Old Testament is all about the law and the New Testament is all about grace. Now, let me, let me take a little side note. This isn't in the notes. In the, in the uh, second century AD, there was a guy named Marcion. And Marcion, uh, he was an opponent of what we would call the biblical gospel. And the reason he was an opponent of the biblical gospel was that he believed that the God of the Old Testament was so different than the God of the New Testament that he rejected the entire Old Testament as being valid at all, that the God of the New Testament is the real God, and that Jesus, yes, is the son of the God of the New Testament, but Jesus is not the son of the God of the Old Testament. If that sounds weird to you and you say, why would anybody believe that? Thousands and thousands and thousands of people fell for that. And they were called Marcionites. And they were, they were a horrible influence in the church. They became so influential that the church at Rome uh, almost threw up its hands and said the Marcionites have taken over. There was a similar group called the Valentinians, and they had, they had some different beliefs uh, that went along with that. I'm actually going to talk about that at Steadfast. But the, the Marcionites, they were fighting for the fact that Everything we know about salvation and about God comes in the New Testament only. And in fact, the purists of the Marcionites would say only uh, from the Gospels and from Paul. Nobody else gets to be a New Testament writer. So uh, they, they perpetuated this idea that the Old Testament God was actually a different God than the God of the New Testament. So if you really believe that, then of course, that page that we often talk about that comes between Malachi and Matthew, uh, not only do they want to leave that there, they want to rip the Old Testament away. And so thankfully, there were men like Polycarp who stood up to him and, and denounced him. And finally, he, was, he and all the Marcionites were denounced as heretics, as they rightly ought to be. So that's, that has 
stayed with us, though, in the idea that if you ask the average evangelical churchgoer, I won't say Christian because there are a lot of evangelicals that aren't Christians. Uh, If you ask the average evangelical churchgoer today, what's the difference between the Old Testament and the New Testament? What will they most often say? Well, the Old Testament is all about law and judgment. The New Testament is all about grace and kindness. That Jesus is the new and improved version of the God of the Old Testament. So that's a myth. Here's another myth. As Christians, we're supposed to obey the New Testament and the Ten Commandments. That's kind of, you know, that's kind of our default. Yes, we obey the, Old, the New Testament, but we also obey the Ten Commandments. Do we obey the Ten Commandments? Don't throw anything. No, we don't. Why? Because it is under a law that we are no longer un- under. Does the New Testament repeat the Ten Commandments as part of the law of Christ? Yes, it does, all except for Sabbath. And I could even make the case that the principle of Sabbath is still there. So uh, that's the common myth. We obey the New Testament and the Ten Commandments. That's kind of our default. Another Christian myth, I can pick and choose which Old Testament laws I still hold to. What are the two most common? Tithing and Sabbath, right? Those are the ones we we hang on to. And I I know even in our church, I I hear people say, and sometimes even in the pulpit, you know, it's time for our tithes and offerings. We're so ingrained with that. I just want to be as precise as we can. Uh, If all of you want to give a tithe, which is technically a tenth of your income, our problems would be over financially uh, if if we actually did that. But it's not a law. It's not a law. So that's a myth. I can pick and choose which Old Testament laws I still hold to. Another myth, the Old Testament law was basically bad and the New Testament fixed that. Now, the New Testament does affirm that the law of Christ is better than the Old Covenant, better than the law, but it doesn't mean it's better uh, qualitatively that somehow God is improving, that, that he gave the Mosaic law and said, you know, I really need to tweak this. The second edit we'll call the New Testament. No, it's improved because in the Old Testament, Ultimately, you were not capable of keeping that law. In the New Testament, we have the Holy Spirit. We are capable of keeping the law of Christ. And so there's, there's a big difference. But the Old Testament law is not bad. What does the Apostle Paul, what does Peter say, what does Psalm 119 say about the law? That the law is good because God wrote it. And then one more myth. In the Old Testament, the blood of animals paid for your sin. And in the New Testament, the blood of Christ pays for your sin. That is a myth. In the Old Testament, the blood of animals never paid for sin. It never provided salvation. It provided temporary atonement, temporary covering, and it also provided a means by which uh, you could show your obedience to God, demonstrating that you know that your sin requires sacrifice. This is why we don't have a problem with Ezekiel 40 through 48 that says in the Millennial Kingdom, uh, sacrifices, animal sacrifices will be reinstituted because they were never to save you in the first place. They were to give the Israelite an opportunity to be in, in right, obedient, covenant relationship with God. And they were a means to temporarily atone for sin, but it never covered your sin in the permanent salvific sense. And so we'll get to how that worked in the Old Testament because you might say, well, then how could you be saved? Because Christ hadn't come yet. So we'll get to all of that. So hopefully we'll answer those myths today by walking through some of these issues and again, basically, I'm just going to read some Bible to you. 
and show you what the Bible says. So let's look, first of all, at salvation in the Old Testament and what were some of the elements of salvation in the Old Testament. First of all, and this answers the question I just got to a moment ago, there was an expectation of a Savior. There was an expectation of a Savior. Genesis 3.15, I will put enmity between you and the woman. This is God speaking to Satan. And between your offspring and her offspring, singular, one person, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. This is what is often called in Latin the first gospel, the first presentation of the gospel. This is the first uh, uh, prophecy of the coming of a Savior. Genesis 4.1, now Adam knew, his, knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. That's the ESV translation. I think a slightly more accurate translation is, I have gotten a man even the Lord. Eve, I believe, believed that she had just given birth to the Savior that had been promised. Um, ironically, this is Cain. He turned out to be quite the opposite of a Savior. But the Hebrew is very clear. It, there, is no, there is no word in there with the help of. It's, I have gotten a man, even the Lord. Which, by the way, tells us that the most ancient people who have ever lived, Adam and Eve, believed that the coming Savior was God. They believed that. They believed in what we would call the deity of Christ. Genesis 5, 28 and 29, when Lamech had lived 182 years, he fathered a son and called his name Noah, saying, out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring us relief from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. Noah means relief or rest. There's an expectation of a savior. So Lamech thought that Noah was the Savior at some level, and to, and to a certain degree he was, wasn't he? Because under Noah's watch, the world was cleansed of sin, at least for a time. The problem is, is there was still Noah and his family who continued the line of sinfulness because they're uh, descended from Adam. Psalm 110, verse 1, The Lord says to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. This is, this is King David saying that Yahweh says, to Christ, my Lord, sit at my right hand until he comes. And so there's an expectation of this coming Savior. Isaiah 9, 6, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Now, you might say, you know, that seems unreasonable. Well, Jesus didn't think so. When Jesus was on earth, he excoriated the leaders of Israel for not seeing him for who he was. Basically, if they knew the Old Testament and compared Jesus to Moses, for example, compared Jesus even to Joseph, compared Jesus to the 350 prophecies or so of his coming, they should have known who he was. And he, uh, he told them, he said, you should have known me. And so if Jesus expected that of Israel, then that means the Old Testament gave an expectation of a savior. And it wasn't really in shadowed form. I, have you read Isaiah 53? There's no shadow about that. There's no mystery to that. That is the story of a Savior sacrificing himself for the sins of those that would place their faith in him. So there was an expectation of a Savior. Let me put it to you this way. It's so hard for us to put ourselves in the, in the tools, in, in the shoes of an Old Testament saint. But the Old Testament saint did believe that a Savior was coming. They, they should know this. They were taught this. 
That was a part of their that was a part of their culture that Messiah is coming, that the Christ we would say in Greek is coming. And so when Jesus came, this wasn't like this big surprise that the Jews were going, hey, what's this guy doing here? They should have known him. And we have proof that they should have known him. When, uh, when Philip went and got Nathaniel, Philip told Nathaniel, the one that Moses spoke of is here. What was, what was Philip? He was just a guy. He knew. And so there was an expectation of a savior. We should be very clear about that. Uh, by, uh, one more instance of this that I could think of uh, in Luke 24, when Jesus is walking on the road to Emmaus with the two disciples, and I'm going to reference this later this morning, but he's, when he's walking on the road to Emmaus with the two disciples and, and, uh, and he, he, he asks them a question and they basically say, haven't you read the news lately? Don't you know what's going on about, uh, about this man Jesus and how he, how he died? And he, Jesus became... Uh, irritated with them because they didn't know what was going on because they didn't know their Old Testament. And so he preached to them all the things concerning himself from the Old Testament, in a, by the way, in about a seven-mile walk. So, uh, wow, what a sermon that must have been. I, I, I've preached on that, and I think I called it the greatest sermon we've never heard. So he said, you should have known. So yes, there was an expectation of a Savior. Let's do another element. Salvation in the Old Testament. Salvation was by grace, not by works. Now that you go, well, that sounds familiar. Of course it does. Because salvation has always been by grace, not by works. Genesis 6, 8. Noah found favor, literally grace, in the eyes of the Lord. That's, that's passive. God gave him grace. Not because he was righteous, but because God chose to give him grace. In Genesis 18.3, And Abraham said, O Lord, if I have found favor, grace in your sight, do not pass by your servant. Exodus 33.12, Moses said to the Lord, See, you say to me, bring up this people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. Yet you have said, I know you by name, and you have also found favor, grace in my sight. It's the same thing. Seven verses later, Exodus thirty three nineteen, and he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the, the Lord, Yahweh. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. What does that sound like? It sounds like Romans chapter nine, doesn't it? Why? Because Romans nine is quoting Exodus 33 because salvation has always been by grace, never by works, not one time. Exodus 34, nine. Again, Moses said, if I have found favor in your sight, grace in your sight. Psalm 51.1, have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. This is King David giving his written confession to God of his sin with Bathsheba, his murder of her husband. And he doesn't say, consider all the wonderful things I've done for you. He just says, have mercy on me according to your chesed your gracious love your steadfast love so salvation has always been by grace not by works salvation has always been through faith key key verse on this issue genesis 15 6 and he believed god and he counted it to him as righteousness this is speaking of abram i'm going to tell you why this is so important in just a moment he believed the lord 
and he counted it to him as righteousness. Romans 4, 1 through 5, what shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. This is Paul in the New Testament quoting and building his soteriology on the Old Testament. Little trivia. What Bible did Paul preach in all of his ministry? He preached the Old Testament because that's all he had. He was still writing part of the New Testament. And so he preached salvation in Christ alone, through grace alone, by faith alone, from where? From the Old Testament. And the object of faith, Genesis 15, 6, is the God of the Bible. Abram believed the Lord, Yahweh. He counted it to him as righteousness. Now, I think this will help make sense. You might say, well, what does it mean he counted it to him? Other translations say reckoned it to him. That's an old word that we haven't used in a long time, but to reckon something means to calculate. It means to count it up. I think a great translation is credit. The problem is saying the word credited is very hard. So he believed the Lord and he credited it to him as righteousness. I always add an extra ED on there. I don't know how to do that. What do you do when you, use a, when, you, when you borrow money or you use a credit card? You have had credit extended to you that you promise will be paid later, right? When righteousness has been imputed to you, according to, uh, according to Romans uh, chapter 5, when it's imputed to you that you've been credited with the righteousness of Christ, what does that mean? It means that while you are not actually as righteous as Christ, someday you will be. So when God said, or when, when Genesis 15 said he believed the Lord and he credited it to him as righteousness, he counted it. What does that mean? It means that Abraham received the credit of the death of Christ before the death of Christ happened in time and space. Who paid for the sins of Abram? Christ did. After he had faith. After Abram had faith. So, to put it this way, can you just picture a, picture a timeline? And over here on this side is, is the, the beginning of the Old Testament. Over here, let's call it the very end of the millennial kingdom reign of Christ, which is the last time anybody will have a chance to come to faith in Christ. So you have this timeline. Now, I want you to picture right in the middle the cross of Jesus Christ. All the people on this side of the cross, how are they saved? By the cross, before it happened. All the people on this side of the cross, how are they saved? By the cross, after it happened. Does it make any difference? No, because God isn't bound by time and space. And so everyone who is saved are saved by, not by works, but by grace, and they're saved through faith. Never is anyone said to have attained to the righteousness of God because he kept the law. No one ever did except Christ. Which brings us to this, and I'm going to repeat myself a little bit here. What is the basis of salvation? It's the work of Christ. You get this obvious uh, text in Isaiah 53. I asked you a moment ago, have you ever read Isaiah 53? As New Testament Christians, we read Isaiah 53 and we go, no brainer. 
Who is this speaking of? Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. Smitten by God. What is that? That's substitutionary atonement. He was smitten. He was struck instead of you. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter. And like a sheep that before its shears is silent. So he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. As for his generation. Who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living. Stricken for the transgression of my people. And they made his grave with the wicked. And with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence, and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief when his soul makes an offering for guilt. He shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. And you might say, well, if I was living back then, what if I'm not a Jew? Then is salvation not offered to me? This wasn't just for Israel. This is for all people. Isaiah fifty-two fifteen, the very beginning of that text I just read you. So shall he sprinkle many nations. What does this mean? In the Old Testament, the idea of sprinkling has to do with making you clean before God. So this was the death of Christ for Gentiles and Jew alike. Hebrews ten four, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Therefore, all of the sacrifices of the Old Testament, yes, they served a purpose. Permanent salvation was not one of them. It never was. And so what's the basis of salvation? It's always been the work of Christ. What about the means of sanctification? Now that you're, now that you're saved... And, we, and I would use that term of an Old Testament saint. There were saved Jews and unsaved Jews, just like there are saved evangelicals and unsaved evangelicals, right? The, the, the churchgoers who have not been regenerated. But what's the means of sanctification, of living a life that's set apart, pleasing to the Lord and demonstrating a changed heart? The means of sanctification was the law. How, what, what does the psalmist in Psalm 119 say about the law? He says several times, Oh, how I love your law. And 176 times he mentions the law and why it's good. 176 different reasons. Why does he love the law so much? Because it is his means to show his love for God and to live a life that's pleasing to the Lord, not in order to gain salvation, but because he has already gained salvation by faith. Do you know what I love about my wife? I love the fact that she doesn't like surprises. You know what that means for me? It means before Christmas, before her birthday, before our anniversary, she gives me a list of ways I can show love to her. You know what I love about that list? Is the fact that I have a 100% chance of being successful if I will only abide by that list. It's beautiful. It works, it's worked for 33 years for us. Why does the Old Testament saint love the law? Because it tells him in 635 different ways how he can demonstrate his gratitude and his kindness and his, or his, his uh, thankfulness and his love for God in very practical ways. 
And how does the Old Testament saint uh, love the Lord back? Jesus boiled it down. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And how do you do that? Love your neighbor as yourself. Do those things. So it was the means of sanctification. The law was also the instrument for, the instrument rather was Israel for proclaiming God's love among the nations. That was Israel. The Israel, put it this way, Israel was the magnet that was supposed to draw nations to God. The church is the opposite. We're supposed to go to the nations. But Israel was supposed to draw in the nations. In, in Israel's day, if you wanted to follow God, if you wanted to be a follower of God, what did you have to do? You became part of Israel. And the doors were open. This is kind of like the ark. The ark was big enough. It was, it was as big and bigger than a modern day cruise ship. It could have held thousands and thousands of people. And given the fact that in Noah's day, there probably were only a few thousand people on the earth at that point, it could have held anyone. And, and what would God have done if Noah said, uh, Lord, we just took our last reservation. The last seat on the ark is taken. God would have said, build another one. Because there's always room for any who will come by faith. And so Israel was the instrument for proclaiming God among the nations. One of the, one of the most seminal moments for me in seminary was one simple phrase that Dr. Michael Grisani said. He said, the job of Israel was to make God big in the world. I will never forget that as long as I live. That's our job as Christians as well. But that was the job of Israel. Make God big in the world. For the Old Testament saint, what's their destiny? The destiny of the saved is a bodily resurrection and the new heavens and the new earth. Those are not New Testament concepts. Those are Old Testament concepts. Job 19, 25 and 26. Listen to this sophisticated eschatology that Job had. For I know that my Redeemer lives and at the last he will stand upon the earth. Let's stop right there for a minute. What does that tell us? He knows that there is a Redeemer. Uh, Your Bible rightly capitalizes R. This is Christ. He knows there is a Redeemer. He knows that there will be an end of all things at the last and he knows that the end of all things will include this Redeemer standing on the earth which is a word that means to rule everything. He goes on, after my skin has been thus destroyed, his own death, his own, the, the, the uh, cataclysm of his body completely disintegrating, yet in my flesh I shall see God. What does that tell us? The resurrection of Job and the, the Redeemer is God who stands in the flesh on the earth. Two verses in one of the oldest books in the Old Testament. The Old Testament saint was familiar with Job and we have right there a doctrine of bodily resurrection and of a savior standing on the earth. Isaiah 65, 17, Behold, I create new heavens and a new earth and the former things shall not be remembered or come into mind. New heavens, new earth. Now you might say, well, Isaiah was you know, written about the 8th century BC, so what did they believe before that? You know what the book of Hebrews uh, chapter 11 tells us that Abraham believed? Now we're going back 2000 BC. Abraham believed that he was looking for a heavenly city, a city that would come down out of heaven and reside on the earth, and that was his final place to go. Pretty accurate if you read Revelation 21 and 22, isn't it? So go back 2000 years from the time of Christ, and you still have the belief in a new heavens and a new earth. How about Daniel 12? 
written in the 7th century BC. Many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, some to shame and everlasting contempt. And those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above, those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. What is this? This is a doctrine of resurrection of all people, some to uh, everlasting life and some to everlasting contempt. Revelation 20, the great white throne judgment, is called the second death. Why is it called the second death? Because the dead, from, the unsaved dead from all of time are raised up in a brand new body, just like, like we'll have a resurrection body in order to have an instrument by which to experience the judgment of God. And so they, in essence, get to die twice. Only the second time is much worse. So this is from the Old Testament. Bodily resurrection, judgment in the resurrection body of the, of the saved, or of the lost, uh, reward of the resurrected uh, saints. Uh, you have the new heavens and the new earth. You have the Redeemer, who is God, standing on the earth, ruling the earth, and we in our resurrected bodies looking upon him, seeing the face of God. That's pretty sophisticated from the Old Testament, isn't it? How about this one? Salvation encompasses both individuals and nations made up of those individuals. I think this is where we often get confused and it's important to make these distinctions. What, what do you do with distinctions that the, the Bible makes? Don't try to simplify them. Don't try to boil them down to some common denominator. Just let them be there and, and that's okay. Um, individuals. Abraham was saved by faith. Genesis fifteen six. We've read that already. Israel as a nation will be saved. Does that mean that every single descendant from Abraham will be saved? No. Romans 9, 6 makes it very clear that not all who are, who are Israel are of Israel. Meaning, uh, we've said this before, all ethnic Israel, one big circle, actual saved Israel, a smaller circle within the bigger circle. And then how about Gentile nations? It's one of my favorite passages in Isaiah. I, I would preach this once a year if I could get away with it. Isaiah nineteen twenty four and 25. In that day, Israel will be the third with Egypt and Assyria, a blessing in the midst of the earth, whom the Lord of hosts has blessed, saying, Blessed be Egypt, my people, and Assyria, the work of my hands, and Israel, my inheritance. That, those two verses alone answer all the questions about how a nation of Israel interacts with Gentile nations in the coming kingdom. It answers all those questions. Why is it so significant that Egypt and Assyria are named? Because they're like the two biggest thorns in the side of Israel all through the Old Testament. And yet God saves a remnant. You will, in the millennial kingdom, go to a Yahweh Christ-worshipping Egypt. Won't that be amazing? You'll, you'll, you'll go to an Assyria that is remade as a nation. Why is it remade? Because God says Assyria is the work of my hands. I invented Assyria. This is all Old Testament. Does this fit with the New Testament? What does the New Testament say will be happening in New Jerusalem? That the kings of the earth, the nations of the earth, will be bringing their glory into the, into the new city. It all fits. Just a couple more things, I think, to try drive this home. Just four or five, actually. Uh, salvation in the Old Testament and New Testament We've talked about this before, but I want to talk about continuities and discontinuities. This is a really useful uh, set of tools to understand that it doesn't have to be either or. You simply have two columns, continuities, things that are similar, 
discontinuities, things that are dissimilar. And I'll just run through this list pretty quickly. The continuities of salvation, meaning what's the same in the Old Testament and New Testament? By grace alone, through faith alone. The object of our faith is the one true living God. The basis of salvation is the death of Christ. The destiny of the saved is resurrection and a new earth, and salvation involves individuals and nations. That's everything I just went through. It's all the same. Now, there are discontinuities. What are, what are those? The content of faith. In the Old Testament, you had an expectation of a Savior, but you, it was incomplete content since Jesus hadn't arrived yet. Can you imagine what it was like, what it would be like to be an Old Testament Jew living during the time of Christ, coming to understand who Christ is? Or how about a, how about a Jew uh, maybe living 20, 30 years after the time of Christ, coming to faith in Christ and getting to hear men like Matthew and Mark and Peter and John and Paul speaking all the things of Christ? It must have blown their mind. You have more information than any Old Testament saint ever had. You could, I, I mean, Isaiah, the greatest prophet of Christ, I believe, in the Old Testament, yet he didn't even know the name of Christ. And you can just say, yeah, his name is Jesus. That's who he is. So the content of our faith in the Old Testament was incomplete. In the New Testament, we have full content. Jesus has arrived. He's come. We know everything that God has chosen to reveal to us about Christ. Do you realize that? We know everything that God intends for us to know about Christ until the day we see him. You have complete knowledge if you'll study your Bible. Another discontinuity, the rule of life. The Old Testament, the Mosaic law is the rule of life. In the New Testament, the law of Christ in the New Covenant is the rule of life. Is there any such thing as a Christian not under the law? That doesn't exist. There is such a thing as a New Testament not under the law of Moses. There, there, there are none of those. All Christians are under the law of Christ. But to simply say, well, I'm not under any law because I'm free in Christ as an excuse to sin, it won't fly. It doesn't work. The means of sanctification, how to obey God and become more like him, Old Testament, Mosaic law, New Testament, Keeping the law of Christ, which is the commands and principles of the New Testament. And you know, we've done this before. The principles found in the Old Testament still instruct us and teach us as God's word. But the Old Testament law is only applied legally under the Old Covenant, not under the New Covenant. Now, God has always been the same. And so the principles of his goodness and his kindness as they're worked out in his law are very, very much the same as in the New Testament. But we want to be very clear about that. Means of sanctification. Old Testament, Mosaic Law, New Testament, Law of Christ. New Testament. What's the role of the Holy Spirit? Another discontinuity. In the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit, he came upon special persons such as kings, judges, prophets, and so forth for special service, but there was no permanent indwelling. There may be a couple of exceptions to that. The prophet Jeremiah would possibly be one. But that wasn't the norm. The permanent indwelling of the Holy Spirit was not the norm. In the New Testament, the permanent indwelling of the Holy Spirit is the norm for every single saint, which is why the, the, the bogus idea that somehow the baptism of the Spirit is something that happens after salvation makes no sense whatsoever. 
That means there are some Christians with the Holy Spirit and some Christians without the Holy Spirit. That, that won't fly either. And then the New Testament ministry of the Holy Spirit is much more robust or known to us. The ministry of regeneration. And we have said that there is some level of regeneration in the Old Testament. We've talked about that before. But regeneration at the total level that we see in the New Testament was not there. There's the indwelling, the baptizing, the sealing, the filling of the Holy Spirit. These are, these are all brand new uh, uh, ministries of the Spirit. So there are discontinuities. And yet, uh, the most important thing for us to remember, that the, the continuities are, are huge. Grace alone, faith alone, through Christ alone. And so the, the, uh, the solas, as they call them, of the great uh, Reformation, that uh, we are saved by Christ alone, through faith alone, uh, by grace alone, as revealed in the scriptures alone, to the glory of God alone, those have always been the same. Always have. We've talked about the law. Let me just do it from a different standpoint. There are three expressions of law in, in, of God's law in history. He, ha- he is holy. He has righteous standards for those who bear his image. And these standards and laws are manifested three main ways. You have, first of all, the law of conscience. The law of conscience in the heart, which is upon all people of all ages. It's always in operation. You have to teach people to not believe in God. If you're going, there's no such thing as uh, an atheist who's born that way. We all have the law of conscience, and it has to come from somewhere. This is a fascinating conversation to have with an unbeliever. Do you believe in right and wrong? Well, of course I do. Uh, tell me something that you believe is right. Well, it's, it's, it's right. Well, it's easier to say, tell me something you believe is wrong. Well, murder is wrong. What's the next question you ask? Why? Well, everybody knows that. Uh, the Vikings didn't. They were murdering people all the time. That was their regular course of action. So was it not wrong for them? Why is it wrong? Ultimately, you always have to go back to a basis for morality. And that basis is that I have a conscience. Well, where'd your conscience come from? Who built it? Who made it? Because if, it's, if it is evolved, if the evolution is true, then your conscience should basically tell you to destroy all those that are weaker than you because that's what evolution says, right? Survival of what? The fittest. But our conscience doesn't say that. Our conscience says to rescue those who are the weakest. Even the atheist believes that. I've told you the story before of working in childcare with an atheist. And I used to tell him, why are you bothering with these kids? They're all going to die and be disintegrated into nothing anyway. So why bother? Why not just go to Vegas and just... Just have pleasure. And he said, well, but I want them to have a good life. He wanted to help the weak. And so his conscience made him do this. The law of conscience has always been there. Isaiah 24, 5, the earth lies defiled under its inhabitants for they have transgressed the laws, violated the statutes, broken the everlasting covenant. What what are the laws, the statutes, the everlasting covenant that the whole earth knows about? It's the conscience and the heart that God has built into us. Romans 2, 14 and 15, when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. Listen, ancient peoples and tribes all over the world have had laws against stealing, against murder, against adultery for centuries and centuries before the law of Moses. Why? Because that's what God placed in their hearts. So you have the law of conscience. Then you have the Mosaic law. 
given to Israel. This goes from Exodus 19 through the death of Jesus Christ. Exodus 19, verse 5, Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you shall speak to the people of Israel. The law begins. Exodus thirty four twenty seven. The Lord said to Moses, Write these words, for in accordance with these words I have made a covenant with you and with Israel. When did the law of Moses expire? It expired at the cross. And we might even get more technical and say it, it expired at the, at the final Passover slash first Lord's table. There was an overlap because Jesus took a cup and after supper, he took this cup saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Take this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. And they drank that cup at that moment. So except theirs was a lot bigger. They weren't holding the little communion cup. So then you have the law of Christ and the law of the new covenant. This is mediated through and for Israel. That's something we have to be clear. It's not that the law of Moses was for Israel and the new covenant is for the Gentiles. The new covenant is for Israel also. And yet it extends out. Now picture the new covenant as a a giant boulder that splashes into the world at the cross of Christ and it ripples into all the the world. I have good biblical basis to call call, uh, this a giant boulder because the book of Daniel says that a stone, a giant mountain will come and reign over the earth and that is Christ. And so the work of Christ for Israel now radiates to every nation. But the new covenant was promised first to Israel. Jeremiah 31, 31 and following, a clear promise of the new covenant. God will write, their, write his law on their hearts. Has the new covenant been completed and fulfilled yet? No. Why? Because we don't have a believing Israel yet. When there's a believing Israel, the new covenant is now complete. We're enjoying the benefits of the new covenant, aren't we? We're enjoying having the law of God written on our hearts. That is the indwelling work of the Holy Spirit, the regeneration. We're enjoying the security of our salvation. For I will forgive their iniquity. I will remember their sin no more. We enjoy that now. Ezekiel 36, Israel has promised the new covenant. Romans 11, very important. Verse 26, in this way all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer shall come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob and this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. So for Israel, they are promised the new covenant. As a nation, they're not under it yet. We pray for that, but it's not happening yet. The church, Galatians 6.2, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. The church again, Isaiah 52.15, so he shall sprinkle many nations. And in Israel, uh, Hebrews chapter 8 a long passage that promises that the least of all Israel and the greatest of all Israel will all know the Lord. They'll all know him. Now remember, when he says all, it's the small circle inside the big circle. And how about all the nations? Revelation twenty-one twenty-four. by its light, that is new Jerusalem, will the nations walk and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it and they will bring into it the glory and honor of the nations. Verse 26. And so these, these three laws are, and I, I didn't advance the slide. I'm sorry about that. Um, so I'll leave that there for a minute. You can get those references if you like. 
But the three laws are distinct from each other in Scripture. We don't mix them up. Is there continuity between the three laws? Yes. They all come from the lawgiver, God. And they all reflect his character and they never contradict each other. Isn't it interesting that the law of the conscience fits exactly the law of Moses and the law of the, of the new covenant? That all three say murder is wrong. Why? Because God has said, you shall not kill. Why, why shall you not kill? Why shall you not murder? Because man is made in my image and you're destroying an image bearer. What is that? What is murder? To God, it's like tearing up a picture of himself. That's, that's why it's wrong. There's continuity. But is there discontinuity? Yes. They're not exactly the same. They all reflect the character of God. But you know, how many of you have dropped to your knees in just abject conviction over having uh, boiled a young goat in its mother's milk? Just, I'm sorry, Lord. It's just this temptation. Every Friday night, I just feel this compulsion to boil a goat. And, I, and, and I'm sneaking around doing it in its mother's milk. How many of you had bacon for breakfast? Probably some of you did. We don't worry about that. We're not under a dietary law because that served a specific purpose. What purpose did the dietary law uh, serve? To show all the nations around Israel that they are totally different than they are. That purpose is no longer needed. How do we show the people of the earth that we're different? Because we bear the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. That's how we show. So yes, there's continuities. Yes, there's discontinuities. If I could just say one last thing, if you're going to take anything away from this, I hope that the doctrines of grace that will, when we get into module four here in a month or so, I hope that the doctrines of grace really are nailed deeply into your heart as the fact that this is how God has saved humanity from the very beginning. Nothing has changed. Salvation has always been by grace, through faith, in Christ alone, revealed in Scripture alone, or from the mouth of God alone, to the glory of God alone. Always. It always has been. And so now, when you read in the Old Testament about saints that are following after God, you don't have to wonder, well, wait a minute. They're not the same as me. Yeah, to a certain degree, they're not. You know, uh, you know saints in the Old Testament sometimes cut off people's heads to uh, obey God. We don't do that now. But they're way more like you than they're not. And what I hope is that as you read about men like Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Moses and Daniel and Ezekiel and, and, uh, and all the others you could read about, that you understand they were saved exactly the way you were. Only what a privilege. What does the Bible say about the Old Testament prophets? 1 Peter 1, they were working for you. The things they were writing, they fully understood, but they did not have everything you have. What a privilege that we have to open our Bibles and know literally everything that God wants us to know about Christ. They didn't have that. So are we the most blessed? I I think we got the best deal. I think we are the most blessed and we're thankful for that. But you have brothers and sisters yet to meet that are thousands of years old who are saved by the by the blood of the cross, just like you. So I hope that's encouraging to you. I'm going to take two minutes for questions. If any, oh, 1024. One minute for questions. If anybody has any questions on this, it's an important topic. Let me start over on this side. Anybody on this side? I'll give you a chance again. 
Over on this side, any questions on salvation, Old and New Testament? That either means you want to leave or I've answered all your questions. So anybody all the way around. Yes, thank you, Deb. Let's see, in one minute. Um, <laughs> let me tell you the ways not to, first of all. Um, there's a whole school of thought that says that Christ is contained in every verse of the Old Testament. I would dispute that greatly. Don't boil a kid in its mother's milk. I don't know where you get Christ there. But every verse in the Old Testament has a pathway and a road to Christ. And in fact, Charles Spurgeon said, when you preach in the Old Testament, that you must, you must pave the way to the cross. Every single verse gets to Christ. And so preaching Christ in the Old Testament isn't just a matter of, well, Joseph is a lot like Christ or, or Moses is a lot like Christ. Um, there's a pathway to the cross. And so that's how I preach Christ in the Old Testament. Um, besides all the obvious places where he's just everywhere in the Old Testament, I mean, Jesus, I, on, the, on the road to Emmaus, I picture him going, really, guys, you're, you've known the Old Testament and you don't see me there. I, I see that exasperation but at the same time, uh, we're careful that it's not that every verse in the Old Testament contains Christ, but every verse leads us to Christ. Um, and you might say, well, wait a minute. You're about to keep, uh, continue preaching Song of Solomon, and you've said that's not about Christ in the church. That's true. Song of Solomon is about how a follower of Christ obeys the Lord in his home. As part of what? As part of the law of Christ. Husbands, love your wives. Wives, submit to your husbands. Uh, love one another with the love of Christ. That is an application of a New Testament Christian principle derived from the cross. So for, in my mind, what's the pathway? What's the road? Because it always leads. There's always a road to the cross. Uh, I, I haven't done this before, but sometime it'd be fun just to have you pick three random verses from the Old Testament. I guarantee you we can get to the cross from it every single time. That's, that's how I do it. But there's a, if you really want to be nerdy about this, there's a great book written by a guy named Sidney Gradanus, which gives seven ways to preach Christ from the Old Testament. Some I don't agree with, some work really well. So if you have nothing else to do, read Gradanus. It'll put you to sleep, but it's, it is, it's a little nerdy. Any other, any other questions? Thank you, Deb. All right. Well, you have a little break time. Let's pray briefly and then we'll go. Thank you, Lord for the word of God, and we praise you and thank you for electing your people. We sit here this day because of your love before the foundation of the world. And so we give you praise for that, Lord. May our praise in a few minutes, our worship be honoring to you, completely all about you and not about us. And we pray in Christ's name, amen. Thank you for your listening ears. I really appreciate it.